The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to individuals whose jobs touch on aspects of LGBTQ life. Not everyone who's trans chooses to have gender reassignment surgery, but many of those who do want that surgery are unable to have the procedures they desire. Sometimes that's for insurance reasons, and sometimes it's because there just aren't enough surgeons to go around. For this week's episode, we talk to someone who's trying to change some of that. Dr. Jess Ting is a gender reassignment surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital's Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery. He's also working to train a new generation of surgeons through the hospital's fellowship program. Among other things, in this episode, he tells us a little about how he ended up working in this area and talks about the procedures that he's helped pioneer. By way of warning, I should also say that there are some pretty graphic descriptions of surgery in this episode, so if you're squeamish, uh, this may not be the one for you, but we think it's super interesting and important. Then in a Slate Plus Extra, Dr. Ting talks about what his kids think of his work uh, on gender reassignment surgery. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Jess Ting, and I am a plastic surgeon that specializes in transgender surgery. What does that entail exactly? What kind of surgeries do you conduct? What kind of surgeries do you specialize in? Well, say today, for example, I did a gender reassignment surgery. And Mm -hmm. all of the surgeries that I do right now consist of gender-affirming surgeries where we take someone from one physical state, uh, a gender which they were assigned at birth, and convert their physical state to a gender which is more in line with their internal gender identity. So say you Mm -hmm. were assigned male at birth, but you are female internally. So we can take your physical body and make you a female. What? We'll get into the details of your day in a minute, I think. But but can you say a little now what these surgeries actually involve? Practically speaking, uh, what are you... uh, doing with the the bodies of the the patients that you work with? So we work in either direction. Say if you're a trans woman, you were assigned male at birth and you have male genitalia, you have a penis and scrotum, and we can take those male parts and make them into female parts. So we take a penis and scrotum and make that into a vagina and clitoris. Mm -hmm. And uh, how many of these surgeries do you conduct a year? Well, we just had a meeting this morning. We have these monthly meetings, and they told me that we have done 350 surgeries since March of 2016. And that's at uh, Mount Sinai, where you work? That is at Mount Sinai Hospital, where I work. So how did you end up uh, at a point in your career where you were working on transgender health issues specifically? I'm guessing that that's not what you were originally trained primarily to do, right? No. And to be perfectly honest, when we started this program at the end of 2015, I had never really even met a transgender person. I didn't even know what that meant. And I was 
a plastic surgeon. I had a busy practice consisting of mostly breast reconstruction after mastectomy for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And Mount Sinai, uh, for a variety of reasons that we can talk about later, decided to to start the first transgender surgery program in New York City. So if you can believe it, in a city this large with this many people, there was no place where you could have gender-affirming bottom surgery. Hmm. So what kind of – did you have to retrain yourself? Did you have to rethink uh, the sort of background that, that, that you had uh, in order to, to start conducting these sort of surgeries? Yeah, it was pretty daunting because these surgeries are, are – they're unlike any others. And like the surgery I did today, it's a vaginoplasty. It's a combination of OBGYN, urology, plastic surgery. It's uh, it's really a unique meshing of techniques from different specialties that just doesn't exist in any other field of surgery. So mm-hmm. when we decided to do this, I had to go back and relearn and that involved traveling around the world to learn from the handful of people who do these operations. How many folks are there uh, doing these sorts of surgeries uh, around the world today? Do you have a sense of those kind of figures? Well, the bottom surgery, the genital reassignment surgery, I would say there may be 20 to 30. Around the world? Around the world. Now, that number wow. is exploding because, as you know, there's a tremendous increase in the interest, uh, tremendous increase in the number of programs and the number of people who are seeking surgery and in the number of medical centers around the world that are trying to do these operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said that that when you first got into this, that you had a little sense of what trans life, trans experience entailed. Has that changed? I mean, did you have to sort of delve into um, that world, that discourse, as you started training yourself toward uh, being able to work on this, these issues? Yeah, so absolutely. Besides learning the techniques, the, the technology, the medicine, and the surgery, you know, I had to become educated in the culture, the cultural sensitivity, learning to ask someone, what is your preferred gender? What is your preferred name? Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's been life-changing. Yeah. And one thing that that I think is probably critically important uh, is that different individuals, of course, have different trans individuals, of course, have different relationships to the process of transitioning. Surgery, you know, is not the singular endpoint for everyone who identifies as trans. Um, As you are working with patients, um, and in fact, probably as you were learning uh, uh, about this whole uh, discourse. Um, do you do you find yourself having conversations with people about uh, their different experiences of the process of transitioning? Yeah. So, I mean, as you say, and that's, that's a very good observation, n- not every transgender patient wants to transition surgically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's great diversity in what patients want. So I've learned to just listen follow the lead of the patient and ask them, what do they want? What, what is their mm-hmm. transition? What are some of the um, options that Mount Sinai can provide to, to those folks who um, are finding other ways to um, embrace their gender identity? Right. So we have a multi-specialty center. For some patients, transitioning is just taking hormones. 
Mm-hmm. And we have endocrinologists, primary care doctors who can support a patient through that sort of transition. For other patients, a transition is just a name change or um, a gender marker train under, on, change on their driver's license. And mm-hmm. we have social workers who can help patients navigate uh, the, legis- the labyrinthian things that they have to go through to get that accomplished. That's great. The uh, procedures that you you conduct when you do uh, conduct these surgeries, um, are, are they things that are clearly established in medical literature or have you had to work things out on your own as you've uh, kind of delved into this line of practice? One of the incredible things about this specialty is that it's a very young specialty mm-hmm. and the operations that we do are new and they're unrefined, they're undeveloped. And one of the remarkable things is only a year and a half into this whole new specialty, we've already, number one, I've invented a whole new way of doing a female-to-male phalloplasty. I've developed new techniques for doing vaginoplasties. It's it's a unique opportunity to be doing a specialty which is so undeveloped, to be entering the field really in its infancy. The opportunities for innovation and pushing the envelope in terms of what we can do with the technology that we have. Can you say more about techniques that you've developed? What what have you done on that front? Well, say, for example, in, in a vaginoplasty, we're creating a vagina. And if you think about a biological vagina, it's it's smooth, it's moist, it's secretory, whereas... The most common operation that we do today for creating a vagina is we create a vagina which is lined with skin. Hmm. It's dry. Um, it can grow hair. It's really not um, very close to a biological vagina. Hmm. And uh, about a year ago, a patient came to me and said, well, Dr. Ting, you know, there's this paper in India where they have this technique where they take peritoneum, which is a lining from the inside of the abdomen, and it's a unique tissue because it's smooth, it's hairless, it's secretory. In many ways, it's very similar to a vagina. And the patient uh, was like, well, can you make a vagina out of this? And, you know, I read the paper, I brought it home, and the exact technique that they had used would not apply in our patients. But, you know, I kept thinking about it for the next several weeks, and and I came up with this adaptation of that technique where we could take the peritoneum, harvest it laparoscopically, remove it from the body, and then reinsert it through the vagina to create a vagina which is much more similar to a, a biological female's vagina by using mm-hmm. this tissue, this peritoneum. So now we can create a vagina which is smooth, it's secretory, it's self-lubricating, uh, just much more similar to a biological vagina. That must be really exciting to be able to kind of shake up or push forward this surgical field that is so important to so many people. Well, it's really cool. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's terrifying on the one hand because we're we're pushing the envelope, but. Uh, I mean, the existing operations, I mean, they're just, they're not there yet. So the Mm -hmm. need is there to create better operations. You've only been doing this for a few years, but do you find that the medical discourse is is changing? Is there communication between surgeons, between people who are trying to uh, move these techniques forward? Uh, Or or is it, you know, sort of 
everyone for themselves at this point. Absolutely. So transgender surgery used to be a specialty that lived sort of on the margins of the medical world. There were no large medical centers that would allow transgender surgery to happen within their hospitals. So you would find a surgeon here or there usually operating in a small community hospital. Uh, One of the pioneers operated in a tiny town in Colorado. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people operated in these little silos. They were isolated, operating by themselves, and people were very proprietary and protective of protective of their techniques. No one shared. There was no open discourse. And as this has moved into the mainstream, that has changed. We have – there are more conferences. There are societies. Um, there's much more open exchange of ideas. And one of the things that we've done at Mount Sinai is we've created uh, the first fellowship in transgender surgery. And something like Mm -hmm. that didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. Like up until July of 2017, there was no place in the United States where a doctor could go and formally learn how to do these operations. So that means in effect that you're training the next generation of surgeons who will work on these issues. Absolutely. uh, I mean, it's it's ironic, right? Because I'm a beginner myself. I've only started doing this a year ago, and yet here we are training the next generation. But there's just such a- You've got to learn by doing. (laughs) You've got to learn by, you know, there's an expression in medicine, see one, do one, teach one. Yeah. But what we found very shortly after opening our program is that there's a tremendous unmet need for surgeons, for doctors to take care of transgender patients. Hmm. And- a year and a half in, we have a waiting list that numbers in the hundreds. How did this project at Mount Sinai begin in the first place? What what was its genesis? It was really a coincidence of sorts. Uh, there was a, a transgender medical program at St. Vincent's Hospital. There was one at Beth Israel Hospital. And those used to be separate standalone hospitals. At one point, Beth Israel acquired St. Vincent's, and then Mount Sinai acquired Beth Israel. So here we are, we've inherited this large primary care practice of transgender patients. And there's a woman named Barbara Warren, who's director of diversity and inclusion uh, at Mount Sinai. And she was very involved in the program. As uh, And she came to the board of directors, the board of trustees of Mount Sinai, and gave a presentation on the transgender practice. And our CEO, Ken Davis, decided there on the spot that Mount Sinai would take a leadership position and start the first transgender surgery program in New York City. And how did you become involved? Well, Ken Davis asked our our hospital president, uh, Dave Rich, um, to to get this program rolling. And I had worked with Dave Rich on a number of other programs in the past. And so he came to me and said, listen, you know, you're a plastic surgeon and we need a plastic surgeon to to start this program. At that, I mean, at that point, no... Background, no experience with this specific uh, surgical field. You're just ready to go. Was it close enough to what you'd been doing before that you felt comfortable, or was that scary? At that it point? was scary. I'd had a little bit of exposure to this in residency, but uh, not very much. And mm-hmm. you know, I was at a point in my career where you know I was looking for the next challenge. And you know, to be able to start on the ground floor and start the first program in a city like New York, and to serve an unmet need for so many people. That was just um, an opportunity I couldn't pass up. 
Absolutely. So is there such a thing as a typical day for you uh, these days since you started this this program, this project? Well, today is a pretty typical day. Okay. How did it go? Today was an awesome day. Uh-huh. I got up at 6. At 7.30, I was in the operating room, and we were doing um, a male-to-female gender reassignment surgery on a 30-year-old transgender female. Is that typical that you're there 7.30 in the morning getting going? It is. Monday, I now do four days of surgery, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We start at mm-hmm. 7.30 on each of those days. Is there a reason that surgeries are scheduled for, for those hours of the morning? Well, there are only so many hours in the day, and we want to help as many patients as we can. So we start at 7.30, and we try to do two surgeries a day or one surgery and then seeing patients in the afternoon. So today you did that one surgery in the morning, and then what came after that? So today I did that surgery. We started at 7.30. I was done by 12.30. And then at 1 o'clock I started seeing patients in the office. Mm-hmm. And that means seeing patients who are coming to us before surgery and patients who are coming to us after surgery. It's a, it's a mix. And uh, so is there kind of generally, is there a balance of the time that you spend consulting with patients and the time you spend in surgery? Is it like 50-50 or, or, or somewhere in that range? Yeah. So probably I spend about 70% of my time in the operating room because that's something that I mean, no one else can do right now aside from me. So I try and maximize the number of patients that we operate on. Mm-hmm. And we have help in the office. I have a physician assistant. We have residents who can help me see more patients. And the idea is to get through our waiting list. We have a waiting list of three or 400 patients. So the, the faster we can get those patients ready for surgery and the more time that we're operating, mm-hmm. Uh, the more we can take care of patients who have been waiting for decades sometimes for surgery. Yeah. But I assume that, that I mean, especially with a relatively small staff, with you as the, the only kind of operating physician, if I'm understanding right, that there are just limits to how much you can actually do in a given day at this point. There are absolutely limits that I am finding. Yeah. I, I mean – would it be possible to do three, four surgeries in a day or would that just be beyond the limits of the human body? There might be someone who could do three or four surgeries a day, but not me. And, you uh-huh. know, these operations, they're, they're really huge operations. They're daunting. They're, they're scary. I mean, you're operating in very critical structures and, you know, the margin for error is very small. Yeah. You have to focus. You have to be on your game. And, you know, you're changing people's lives, so it has to be perfect every time. What are the, what are the initial consultations uh, like? Um, when, when you first sit down with a new patient, someone who might be considering surgery, um, what sort of conversation are you having from the get-go? Well, the first priority is we want to do safe surgery. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure our patients are ready for surgery emotionally, mentally. We want to make sure they're physically prepared for surgery. And we want to make sure that socially they're well prepared to cope with uh, the postoperative course, that they're living in some place that's safe, that they have people who can help them after surgery, that they have a plan for recovery. Um, 
before we do surgery, we need to make sure that the patients are adequately prepared, that they know what they're getting themselves into. This is a big commitment. It's a big step. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, we follow the WPATH guidelines. What so, are those? Right. The WPATH is uh, the World Professional Organization of uh, Transgender Health Professionals. Mm-hmm. And essentially anyone who wants gender reassignment surgery has to be living in the desired gender for a year. They have to be on hormones for a year, and they need letters from two mental health professionals stating that they are ready for surgery. Mm-hmm. Do you um, communicate with other professionals, with doctors who've seen them in, a, in the past, or do you just rely on uh, those letters, that, that kind of information that they're bringing to you? Wait, yeah. So one of the advantages of working at Mount Sinai is that we have a multi-specialty center. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, CTMS, the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery. And at our center, we have psychiatrists, psychologists, primary care doctors, endocrinologists, mental health professionals, and every patient that has bottom surgery at our program is screened by this multidisciplinary panel. Every week we sit down in a conference room with about 10 other doctors, social workers, psychiatrists, and we talk about every patient and we make sure that every patient is fully prepared for surgery. Mm-hmm. And once they've passed that screening process, then and only then do they get an appointment to see me for surgery. Okay. So they've been through a lot before they come, uh, this really kind of holistic program before they come to you. Exactly. They've been through a lot. Are there ever folks who are coming from outside the Mount Sinai system, or, or is your work entirely focused on uh, internal treatment through that program? We operate primarily on patients in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. And not just within Mount Sinai, but anywhere within 100 miles of New York City. But, you know, as our reputation has grown, we are getting referrals and inquiries from all over the world. Like Just last week, we had emails from Australia, Japan, Europe, South America. So after a patient 
potential patient has been through um, this whole process with uh, other physicians, um, other medical care professionals. Um, when you first sit down with them, what are you trying to learn or discover? I mean, what what do you need to what do you need to know from them in order to do the best possible work? So when I meet a patient for the first time, you know, I generally meet them just once before surgery. And I just want to try and get a sense for who they are and what they want from surgery. And I want to make sure that their expectations are are reasonable, that their expectations are in line with what, what I can provide them. Mm-hmm. Because the goal is to have happy patients. Of course, yeah. If if you ever do get an inclination, an inkling, if you ever get an inkling that the uh, patient's expectations are not in line with what you can provide, is that something that you communicate there? Do you have some other way of trying to take a step back? Or? Absolutely. And, you know, this has happened. I have come across patients who I felt were not realistic in what they wanted, what they thought they could have from surgery. Mm-hmm. And I'll just turn around and refer those patients back to the center and have them reevaluated. I'll spend time talking to them. Um, you know, the last thing we want to do is operate on someone who, you know, we can't give them what they what they expect. What other kinds of information do you convey in those meetings with uh, with patients? It's important to talk about uh, the risks of surgery and all the things that can go wrong. You know, we try to do safe surgery, but sometimes there are complications. There are things that we just can't control for. And it's important that patients go into these operations knowing what the possible risks are. Sure. That's true for for any surgery, I assume, that that you would ever conduct or have conducted to to some extent. Informed consent is part of every pre-surgical consultation. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that's important uh, in those conversations? Well, I want to make sure that the patient is emotionally and psychologically in a place where they're ready for surgery and where I think that they will have um, a good outcome, where they will be able to take care of themselves and after surgery. Yeah. All right. So so you've you've met with someone. It sounds like you, as you say, you, you're generally only going to meet with them once before uh, surgery. Um, how long is it between that initial meeting and uh, the actual procedure, typically? Well, we have a pretty long wait list for surgery. So the patients, for example, that I saw today are getting booked for surgery in June of 2018. Wow. It's a long time out. It's a long time out. And that's with me operating at full capacity every day that I can possibly operate. Do you ever have to grapple with the frustrations of patients about that kind of timetable? Yeah, patients are... Patients, you know, people want to be who they want to be. And for Mm -hmm. our patients, some of our patients, for some of our patients, having the surgery is the most important thing that they can do for themselves. Hmm. And, yeah, if you have to wait a long time for surgery, it's tough. It's frustrating. And some of our patients have waited 30, 40 years for surgery. Right. This isn't the first time they've been delayed. This isn't the first time. Yeah, one one of the cool things about what we're doing is 
we are allowing patients to have these surgeries who otherwise just would not be able to, who wouldn't have the resources mm-hmm. to do so. And up until we started this program, uh, there were no places in New York City where someone, say, who had Medicaid could have uh, transition surgery. Mm-hmm. That must be very gratifying to be contributing to that. Yeah, it's really cool. What sort of prep do you do in advance of a surgery in, in the the days or even hours before? What, what do you have to do to get ready to conduct one of these procedures? I mean, it's like playing a, playing a football game, right? You have to get yourself mentally in the right place, make sure I have a good night's sleep. The operations are, are tough. Mm-hmm. They're not easy. You know, before I start every surgery, I'm always thinking about, okay, what are the 50 things that can go wrong in this operation? How do I make sure that none of those happen? I have to do every step perfectly. And I'm visualizing the different steps mm-hmm. and uh, what can go wrong and how do I do this? How do I make that better? How do I throw that stitch just the right way? A lot of it is mental preparation for me, visualization. Mm-hmm. So you do it all in your head before you do it? I do it all in my head. On the body. Yeah. Yeah. I say a little prayer before every surgery. (laughs) Uh, And then you, 7.30 in the morning, you head into the uh, surgical theater. Is that the right word? Into the surgery room? Into the operating room. Yeah. Into the operating room. That's it. Uh, And and can you lead us through that experience? The patient... uh, when they show up, are they already uh, anesthetized or are they already under? Usually? No, no. The patients come in and they walk into the holding area and we're there and we talk to them. We go over what they're going to have done. We double check mm-hmm. that, you know, nothing has changed, that they're still ready to proceed with surgery, that they're mentally and emotionally in the right place for surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go over the consent again. We talk about the exact surgical plan, what can go wrong, what we're going to do that that day in surgery, and then we have them sign all the proper consents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the nurses come by, the anesthesiologists come by, and everyone has their, their role to play. We bring the patient to the operating room, start an intravenous line, and slowly just uh, put them to sleep. I imagine that there must often be some heightened emotions uh, in that time just before uh, surgery begins when you're having those conversations. Um, do you have to be attentive to your bedside manner uh, in advance of a surgery? Yeah. You know, for patients, it's a very emotional time. Many of them have waited a long time and they're nervous, they're terrified, but at the same time, really excited to start this new phase in their lives. Mm-hmm. So once they've gone under, what's next? Who who's in the th- up in the operating room with you? Uh, first of all, so there's an anesthesiologist. Uh, there's a, a scrub nurse. That's someone who hands me all my instruments and all the equipment that I need. There's another nurse, a circulating nurse, who will travel around the room and gather up anything that we need. And then I'll have someone helping me, either a resident or a fellow. That's a, a surgeon in training or sometimes a physician assistant or a medical student. Mm-hmm. And what does the the process involve for, for example, for one of these uh, vaginoplasties that you, you described earlier that you helped um, uh, create the, the, this, this process? Um, what are you doing there when you're actually in the operating room? So 
I mean, the first thing we do uh, after we get the patient positioned on the operating room table is we, you know, we take these magic markers and we sketch out exactly what we're going to do on the patient, on their skin. Hmm. And, you know, there's such a wide variety of anatomy from patient to patient. Everyone is different. So we really have to customize the surgical plan to each patient. Mm-hmm. Have you, and you've done some of that work, I assume, in advance of the uh, the actual surgery based on their chart, or or is it all happening there uh, in those hours? I mean, I you know when I see them in in the office, I'll examine them and I already have an idea of what we're going to do. But it's not mm-hmm. until we're in the actual operating room that we draw on the patient, and we sketch out the actual place where the incisions will be, where we're going to place the clitoris, where we'll place the vagina, you know, mm-hmm. where we're going to be taking the skin graft from. All of that is done in real time in the operating room. And how long does that part of the process take? The sketching, the drawing takes about 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And where do you go from there? What's next? And from there, uh, at that point, we inject an anesthetic, a a local anesthetic, a lidocaine, marcaine mixture all over the the place where we operate. And I do that to minimize post-operative pain. Right, the the long acting anesthetic that I inject will last for a couple of days, and that really helps minimize uh, the pain in the first twenty four hours after surgery. Hmm. And once that is done, we make our first incision, which is usually harvesting the skin. You know, we take the skin from the scrotum, uh, cut it out in a butterfly incision shape. And that skin is used to make uh, the deepest part of the vagina. So we'll take that skin mm-hmm. and prepare it by thinning it out, and then we save it on the back table, and we'll use it again at the end of the operation. Mm-hmm. And what comes after that? So then in the next step, we do the orchiectomy, which is removal of the testes. Uh-huh. So through that same incision, we've now we've removed the, the skin of the scrotum. So the, the two testes are there. We take them, we isolate them on their stalks, and we put these threads around the the base of the stalk so they don't bleed, and we cut them, and we remove uh, each of the balls, and those get sent to a laboratory to be tested for any abnormalities. Okay. And and then at that point, um, so in this operation, we take, you know, the skin of the penis, and essentially we turn it inside out and turn that into a vagina. It's like taking a sock and flipping it inside out. So... Before we can do that, we only want the skin. So we have to remove all the internal parts of the penis, the erectile parts, the urethra. Mm-hmm. So those are all removed meticulously, uh, leaving just the skin. And, you know, as part of that process, we save a little bit of uh, the glands, the tip of the penis, to make a new clitoris from. We want to save the nerve and blood supply to that little bit of tissue. That's critically important. That becomes uh, the new source of erogenous sensation um, in mm. the female genitalia. Then we take that clitoris and we suture it to the, the pubic bone where a normal female clitoris would be. Hmm. And then in the, the most dangerous part of the operation, we create the actual vaginal cavity, right? You need to create a space where there is none. And there's not a lot of room in the male pelvis to make that space. There's really only one place. And there's a narrow uh, space between the rectum and the urethra. It's maybe a centimeter wide, and we have to open up that space with a scalpel and an electrocautery about eight inches deep without injuring either the rectum or the urethra to create a new vagina. Hmm. 
Yeah. And once we've created that space, then we take that skin, that, that sock, and we turn it inside out and place it into that space. And that becomes uh, the new vagina. How long does that part of the process take? That seems like it must be super involved, but I also assume you must have to work relatively quickly since you're dealing with issues of, of blood flow and things like this, right? Right. The The making of the vaginal pocket takes about 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and the whole operation takes about four hours. Are there more steps to that that, that you want to describe? Well, then we um, we shorten the urethra, right, so that uh, the patient can urinate while sitting down. And aesthetically, we create a clitoral hood. We make the labia minora, make the labia majora. Uh, at that point, you know, it's a lot of um, aesthetics and yeah. artistry to just create the uh, the external genitalia. Do you find yourself proud of the work that you do there? You describe it as artistry and aesthetic? Yes, <laughs> a- absolutely. We, we can make the most beautiful female genitalia. Sure. That's great. The the other kind of major um, surgery that you perform is uh, is phalloplasty, the correct term? That's exactly it, yeah. So you do these vaginoplasties and phalloplasty, which is presumably very different. Uh, is it easier, harder, just, just different? A phalloplasty is a much harder operation. And I mean, to be honest, the results are not nearly as good as uh, the other way around. So we can make a very realistic, beautiful, and functional female vagina, mm-hmm. but it's really hard 2017 to make a, a phallus that is functional, that becomes erect, that has sensation, right? We can't really do all of those things today. Because there's so many factors in play there from distribution of nerve tissue, I assume, to yes, uh, the functioning of tumescence itself which exactly is you know the the erectile the erectile apparatus of the penis is unique in the human body and there's nothing else like it yeah uh, the closest we can come I mean, we can create the skin of a phallus and we can create a reasonable facsimile and maybe it will have some sensation and then a year down the line we can take an erectile apparatus you know it's mm. like a it's filled with uh, water and you can blow it up and that can create an erection Mm-hmm. But that's a subsequent surgery that that's that's would a have. subsequent surgery, and you know it has its own set of complications. It's not one hundred percent successful. So clearly, the phalloplasty is an operation that's in need of improvement. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Once you've completed one of these surgical processes, are you immediately heading uh, to another surgery typically or, or do you have some downtime between them? We immediately head into another operation. You know, they, mm-hmm. we need time to get the dressing on, to wake the patient up, and they clean the room. They turn over the room. Mm-hmm. Maybe about an hour between surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, so y- you're sometimes looking at ten hours of surgery in a given day. Then, yeah, if, if I'm doing give or take. Right. Mm-hmm. That must be pretty exhausting. It's exhausting. 
not even so much physically as it is just mentally exhausting. Mm-hmm. What what sort of follow up do you do after a procedure? Do you see a patient later that evening, the next day? When do you check in with them? Uh, the, uh, we will check the patient usually the the night of surgery, or one of our our team members will will go in and check on them, and then we see them the following day. And they're in the hospital for three or four days, depending on what the operation is, and then they go home. And after that, we see them back weekly for the first couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have you ever had patients reconnect with you down the line, talk to you about how they've come away from it? feeling, uh, what their experience uh, of life after surgery has been? Yeah. So, you know, even after a six-month or a year period of convalescence, I still see the patients every year for a checkup. Mm -hmm. So one of the cool things is getting to see the patients after they've transitioned, after they've had these surgeries, to see how how it's affected their lives. Mm -hmm. And what... What have you experienced of that? What what have you seen from uh, seen from patients? I mean, honestly, it's the most mind blowing thing I've ever seen. And uh, like the oldest patient we've operated on was a seventy seven year old trans woman, and the first time I saw her, she was like, "Well, Doctor Ting, I've waited since I was five years old to have this surgery." Hmm. And you know, when she first came in, she was really nervous and. She told me she wasn't sure that she, we were going to do her surgery because she was so old. She thought maybe we were going to tell her, you know what, you're too old to have surgery. Mm-hmm. And I think she was terrified of that. And when I told her, oh, absolutely, we're we're going to book you for surgery, um, I mean, she started crying. She was so happy. And so she had her surgery, and I'll never forget the the first time she came in for her checkup and we removed the bandages and she got to see herself. She just burst into tears. So she's like, I've waited my whole life for this. I've waited my whole life to to be who I am. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. I mean, and this is someone, she'd been living as a woman for, for many, many decades. She was married, had a stable life, but this was just something that she wanted to do for herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's striking that on the one hand, she was able to live as a woman, but this was a part of that that you were able to contribute to that uh, she might not have been able to have at a, another moment in time. Yeah, I think it was just one more step. There was one, it was just that one thing that always bothered her. Every day when she would look at her body, she would feel like, oh, this is not me. This is not who I am meant to be. Hmm. Yeah. So you were also helping to train, as you said before, the the next generation of gender reassignment surgeons through the fellowship program uh, at Mount Sinai. What does that part of your job entail? Um, What kind of education or training are you doing there? So we started a fellowship in transgender surgery in July. And our first fellow, her name is Bella Avanesian. She finished plastic surgery training in June and she's spending a year with us learning how to do these operations. Right now, she's on maternity leave. She just had a baby. But uh, after she comes back, and, and what she did for the first several months of fellowship is essentially just shadow me. She was with me every day in surgery, seeing patients by my side, 
learning how to do every step of the operation, learning how to take care of patients before surgery, how to manage them after surgery. Does that take any of the work off your hands or are you still doing just as much as you would have been otherwise? <laughs> you know, in the beginning, it's probably more work because yeah. instead of just doing it, I also have to show it to someone else. But I mean, she's a, she's an incredible surgeon and she's learned very, very quickly. And, That's great. Yeah. She's taken on some of the tasks. She's made it easier. And the real payoff is next year. I'm hoping that she'll come back and join our faculty. And then we'll be able to operate on twice as many people. <laughs> That'd be great. And I'm sure many, many people would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So what's most rewarding uh, about this work for you? What You go to bed, I assume, exhausted every day. What are you feeling about your job as you're falling asleep, trying to get that good night's rest before the next morning surgeries? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'd have to say there are just not that many jobs where you can get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to change someone's life. And uh, that's the most rewarding part of what I get to do every day. I mean, it's really, it's a privilege and a joy. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your work. Uh, I learned so much from this. Thank you for having me. It was totally our pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. This week, I also want to give a shout out to Slate's Audio Book Club, where you can listen in to monthly discussions of new and important books, guided usually by my friend Katie Waldman. Read the book club selections and then listen in as our critics, Katie and others, uh, hold lively and sometimes heated debates uh, about the works that, that they're reading and that hopefully you're reading with them. In the latest episode, Katie and her interlocutors discuss Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. Check it out. Here at Working, we also love to hear from you by email. You can write to us via working at slate.com. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.